Last night, Joseph ended his talk with the, these words from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And I'd like to start here tonight. We are visitors on this planet. We are here for 90, 100 years at the very most. During that time, we must try to do something good, something useful with our lives. Try to be at peace with yourself and help others share that same peace. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal, the true meaning of life. Tonight I'd like to speak about generosity because it is about contributing to other people's happiness. It's also about coming to understand how generosity contributes to our own happiness, to our own well-being, to our welfare, our spiritual welfare. How generosity opens the way, opens the path to the unconditioned, to Nibbana. So how is generosity onward leading towards the end of suffering? Oftentimes, in our daily lives, we don't get the connection with the wonderful and beautiful acts of giving, of sharing that we do in our lives. The Buddha said that there are two kinds of rare and precious beings in this world, those who are grateful and those who are generous. In the suttas, we read that the Buddha would offer the Dhamma always in a gradual way, when invited to a family or to a community, he would often begin with the training on generosity, which uh, is often we hear the word dana, which can mean generosity. And the Buddha said it is the beginning practice for those who wish to diminish the forces of suffering. It's often spoken about as one of the foundations of our spiritual development, of our spiritual evolution. It's not so spoken of in a formal dana teaching, dhamma teaching way as other teachings are given in the hall. And I often feel that we're, um, as teachers, we're remiss in offering formal dana teachings. And so I wanted to give you this teaching on dana, uh, generosity that the Buddha would have given um, in, a, in a very just as important way as the other teachings are given. The other teachings are given usually in the way of sila. This is the virtuous living, uh, harmonious living. Also, the teachings are given in bhavana. A lot of the teachings we gave here during retreat are about bhavana, mental development, the development and training in concentration, the development and training of wisdom. And so this training in uh, dana or generosity is just as important. Establishing each of these foundations with care makes practical sense with very intentional care. It would be short-changing ourselves to not do this, to 
minimize the importance of dana and sila. So the practice of generosity gives us a tremendous sense of inner and outer stability. The practice of generosity leads the way towards the practice of virtuous living, which again gives us an ever-deepening sense of stability from which we can uh, deepen into or build upon in our practice of bhavana, mental development, developing the heart, developing the mind. When we pay attention to how the practice of generosity works in our lives in a practical way, it comes from a very deep realization that my being here on earth depends on the kindness of many. And in, in the opposite way, too, other beings are here because of my kindness. My own children wouldn't be here without my kindness. I wouldn't be here without the kindness of my mother and father, and so forth and so on in, in ways um, going forth from me and before me. And so there's this vast sense of interconnectedness that we deepen into with the practice of generosity. There's this kind of innate wisdom that develops through generosity that we're not separate, that we're all so deeply connected. It engenders this stable sense of non-separateness, of interconnectedness in this floating world. So in the place where I've lived um, the past almost 30 years, the elders of our community are, uh, are held in a very respected way. And they're called the kapuna. And oftentimes these kapuna, um, not oftentimes, but at least in the place where I live on Maui, the kapuna are given a place in the schools, in the elementary schools, even if they hadn't even gone past first or second grade themselves so that they can share the wisdom of, um, of their hearts with others. And these kapuna often share with the youth, and I've been part of that, um, knowing many of the elders of our community, the Hawaiian elders. They knew how, by our breath, which sustains our lives, how we're intricately connected, how we're infinitely connected to each other. And so long ago when I learned about the word aloha, which for many of us we have the simple understanding that it means hello, goodbye, it means love. But there's a deeper understanding in the islands that Aloha, the last part of that word, ha, means breath. And when we greet each other, we, um, we embrace each other, and on one side of the face and into the ear, one says ha. And then on the other side, we say ha. And it means I share my life with you. I share my breath with you. I connect my life with you. I connect my breath with you. That is our greeting to each other. 
this uh, very mystical and forgotten understanding. We greet each other, we depart from each other in these ancient ways when we do that. Ha is also in the word mahalo, thank you. It's just sharing that breath. When someone gives something to you, you give back your breath, your life, ha. So dana, or generosity, is on many lists of the Buddhist teaching. Just to name a few, the list that I've been working with, the four qualities of a beautiful human being, sapurisa, faith, which I spoke about earlier, wisdom, which many of us have been speaking about in various Dharma talks. Virtue is the third one, which I'll speak about on Sunday with Steve. And this one, generosity, these are the four of that list. It's also on the list of the paramis, uh, the ten paramis in the Theravada teaching, Among the ten are patience, equanimity, metta, and energy. And these are qualities that carry us across the waters from confusion to clarity, from cruelty to compassion, from ignorance to liberation. More contemporarily, uh, one of our colleagues, Roger Walsh, who's a professor at the University of California in Irvine, professor of anthropology and philosophy, wrote a book about the seven central practices to awaken the heart and the mind. And he searched throughout many of the religions and philosophies of our time and past times and saw that generosity was always one of them. It wasn't left out. So this is from the Buddha in the Itivuttaka. If beings knew, as I know, the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their use without sharing them with others. Nor would the taint of stinginess obsess their heart. And even if it were their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there were anyone to receive it. I still remember um, with a lot of fondness and a lot of um, understanding how some of our teachers just embody the teachings without saying anything. How when Manindra, one of our teachers, would spend time in our family home and I would offer him food, and he'd always take from his plate some of his food and give it to someone else. Whether they liked it or not, he would scoop something up and give it to one of the children. And if he were left alone eating at home, which I sometimes I'd have to do because I'd go off to work and everybody would be gone and I'd give him his food and then I'd have to go leave again, later he would tell me, Oh, Mom, he called me Mom. <laughs> he wanted to be one of the kids said, oh, mom, he would say, I gave some of my food to the birds or to the cat, you know, and, or he would even say, I gave some of my food to the devas outside that are living in the tree. 
And so, you know, he would really take this to heart, sharing his food if there were anyone to share it with. So what did the Buddha and other great beings, of course, of past times and present times know about the results of sharing that is so life-transforming that he talks about in many times in the suttas? How does letting go, which is essentially the essence of the practice of generosity, benefit the giver as well as the receiver? Whenever I think I already know the answers, like, yeah, yeah, I got that a long time ago, or, uh, yeah, I've been there, done that, I always learn something new about the refinement of the practice of generosity because it is a refining of it all the time. The practice of generosity is a mindfulness practice, like metta is a mindfulness practice. We bring conscious attention to our practice of generosity, not just to do or to practice giving in a willy-nilly way. It's really important to bring a lot of consciousness around it, a lot of care around it. So something else is always illumined to me that nourishes my highest aspirations of the holy life. During a time, uh, that same time when I told you Manindra was at my house, uh, he was recovering from some surgery. And as I mentioned, I was feeding him, also doing other things for him, taking him to medical uh, appointments and giving him medicines and providing him with shelter. And uh, during that time, he would always want to offer even when he was not so well, he would like to offer the Dhamma to me. And I realized later that it wasn't really I who was just giving, that he was giving all the time, offering the Dhamma when he wasn't feeling well. Some little teaching, even when it was in a prone position on his bed, some little teaching that would help me aspire to something higher than I presently was aspiring to. He asked me if I understood the value of the generosity I was practicing. And of course I knew that it's good to do this. Of course you help your elders, you help your teacher, especially when you can. Um, it's a, it was a blessing to take care of him for me. There was a lot of metta, a lot of compassion, a lot of equanimity I had to develop in order to do that. So I could see already that there were qualities that were being developed in giving to him. But I didn't understand the full value of the practice of generosity. I felt, of course, that it was wonderful that I could take care of one of our Dharma treasures uh, in this world. It said that those who offer the Dharma are offering a very precious gift. In the text it says, those who offer the Dharma are offering the deathless, the way to the deathless. 
And so later I realized how important it was to take care of him. The deathless is the possibility of attaining nibbana, of living free from greed, hatred, and delusion in this world. And so he said to me during that time, he said, you can practice generosity in two ways. You can practice without a full understanding of what you're doing. And of course you will reap the benefits of that act because the act of giving is a cause and there are results from that which will, will be received by you. Or you can practice with full understanding to know the cause and effect relationship, of course, and also the deep and far-reaching implications of the practice of generosity, of how generosity, as Utejaniya, one of the monks in Burma, says, helps us to give away our greed because it is the opposite of greed. It is the opposite of attachment and how that leads to liberation. So I knew in my own small way at that time, greater now I know this, that he wanted me to bring this practice out of the realm of habit, which is a very limited realm. Of course we're all good people here. Of course we give. And it can be in the realm of not being so conscious, just in the realm of habit. And he wanted it to come into the realm and into the light of wise attention. And not just do this acts of generosity willy-nilly without caring about it, but to really reflect on it before, during, and after the acts of generosity. I thought about how true it is for me that most of my action was out of routine, just really rote. Somebody would ask for alms, and of course my heart would open and I would give. But that is when it's prompted. It's said that when generosity is unprompted, it takes a lot more um, chetana, it takes a lot more of that intention and so that, gener- that generosity that's unprompted has a much more powerful result. So there's prompted and unprompted uh, generosity. We give out of a place of having a good heart, of course, but our hearts can become bigger. We give out of, of a place of being nice, but we can give out of a place of wisdom of ever-deepening wisdom. We want to do the right thing, of course, for others. But how can we do the right thing also for ourselves? So I was interested in doing this practice and any practice that leaded to more awareness. So Manindra shared some of these facts, uh, Dhamma facts, with me about giving. And in the same spirit, I'm sharing them with you this evening. The aim of generosity is twofold. The first is to free others of their discomfort, of their suffering, not just in the present, but 
their possible future suffering. So we try to prevent whatever suffering may come. We do this, of course, through what we can give with our words, with our actions, with our material resources in various ways. We do this in the first way uh, to free others because we want to bring them happiness. We don't want them to suffer. We want to share our lives with them. So, of course, this results in greater ease for others. The second aim of generosity is to free ourselves. Not that we do it with that selfish aim or agenda, but because with deep wisdom we know that each act of giving is an act of letting go, is an act that's free from attachment, mostly free from attachment, sometimes sometimes completely free from attachment. We do this because there is a movement of the heart to relinquish, to open, to let go, to abandon clinging. In the laws of cause and effect, karmic results of generosity are greater ease for ourselves, abundance on one level. My aunt used to say, cast your bread upon the waters and you get a casserole back. It comes back better than when you put it out. I learned this very young. I saw my mother, and many of you uh, come from families where you've had this kind of ways that people just held that wisdom and knew that deep wisdom. So very poor family that we came from lived when I was younger, moved um, from the Philippines to the United States, and we lived in the projects of San Francisco, and I have very fond memories of that time. We used to buy, you know, like 100-pound sacks of rice, and even when there wasn't much to eat, my mother would give rice, just little cups of rice to people who would come and visit, people who delivered the, you know, there in that time there was Tuesday is Red's Tamale Day, and this guy would come around selling tamales, And my mother sometimes would buy maybe one or something we could all share. And then she would also give him something. So we learn that that's that's a good thing to do. But on a deeper level, there's the results are farther reaching. The results are a heart freed from the cause of suffering, which is clinging. And so to know that, it's important that we begin to consciously develop this mindfulness around generosity in our lives. So on the external level, there is a freeing of others. On the internal level, there's a freeing of our own hearts, of suffering in our own hearts. Layers of clinging, layers of holding on get released because, of course, In any mindfulness training, it exposes places where it's not so um, not so comfortable. In the mindfulness training of generosity, it exposes deep places of fear of if I let this go, what will be left for me? Deep places of stinginess. 
uh, which comes from fear, of course. Uh, places of, you know, I really like this, I'm attached to this, I, I can't let this go. Um, it exposes places where it's not so beautiful inside, and we need that to happen in this purification process. So for that, it's important also that we practice in a very conscious, aware way. Achan Shah says, do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom, the deepest kind of liberation. When the heart is not holding on, there's so many beautiful inner states that are there. The one that's most predominant for me is happiness. Before giving a gift, if I check inside, there's happiness there. During the giving of a gift, when we check, there's happiness. After we give, when we reflect on on that moment of giving, on that time of giving, there's happiness. Still, I remember and always remember those acts of giving, especially ones that are really brought to our attention, where it's upheld with um, a lot of value. So where many of us have practiced in the meditation centers of Burma, the food donors are not only listed on the board, but uh, oftentimes, at least where I've been practicing when I go there, the food donors are mentioned uh, before the meal. And sometimes the food donors, almost all of the time that I've been there and noticed, the food donors come from afar, wherever they have lived, around the town or around Burma, when they give to that center. And they are there in order to witness the happiness of those people eating the food, or they're, at least they're being nourished, and to know the, um, their own happiness. And so uh, the donors are mentioned, are uh, announced beforehand. So we see it on the board, and then uh, there is this mentioning of the donors, and then the person who's announcing it says, let us all rejoice in this meritorious act. And everybody says, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. So when this first happened to me, it was like, oh no, don't, don't mention my name. I don't want to stand out. You know, I, I really... Um, you know, I, I, I was taught that you sort of say, no, it's nothing, you know, and you sort of diminish the importance of that. But it's the exact opposite in Burma. You uphold the importance of it, and you, you let people know who, who has given so that that, pe- that person can feel their happiness and to know their goodness. So I got used to that, and then I would, you know, feel like, oh, just look inside, and not to puff up one's sense of self, 
but to really put a light on the beautiful qualities of the heart when that giving takes place. It's important uh, to know how to give a gift, uh, actually. Um, Not to deny the importance or validity of that whole act, but to put yourself to put your whole self in the act of it. It's said in the, in the text, the Buddha says, one gives a gift out of faith. One gives a gift respectfully. One gives a gift at the right time. One gives a gift with a generous heart. And one gives a gift without denigration, without denying its importance. And so I came to understand how important it was to do that, to really let the donors be there and uphold their beauty for them and for all to see. And so when I remember those times, um, my heart gladdens when I remember those times. And it's, it does, for me, brings a lot of energy. It also settles the heart. Someone recently told me that once he gave a needle, a small needle that you could hardly see, to Upandita, Seda Upandita. And Upandita received the needle as if he were receiving a monastery. It was so important for him to uh, uphold that person's act. And to really pay attention, to really stay steady when that person was giving, and just to receive it with that kind of fullness of awareness. Because that act, the act of giving a needle, even something so small, that karmic karmic cause goes into that person's mind stream and it bears results that are beneficial to that person's uh, onward going in the Dhamma. And so because of that, I knew this since before, and because of that, it's impossible for me to not receive someone's gift. That I have to take the time and stop and really say, I'm so, in my heart, I'm saying, I'm so happy to fulfill your act of generosity because I know what it means for you karmically, for me to uphold in the deepest way the wisdom of that act. On a day of offering food at these monasteries, um, sometimes, but not all the time, we have a face-to-face meeting with Sayada Upandita because he's, the pre- he's our preceptor at this monastery. And he usually meets with the donors. Sometimes I go by his kuti, and there are many, many people there offering the food, and then you, you hear him giving a little talk, and then um, they show up in the eating hall. And the first time I gave a meal, 
uh, to everyone practicing, I gave the meal here. My first retreat with Seda Upandita, he was here with several monks. And actually, I didn't know uh, him at that time, but Steve um, Armstrong was one of those monks. His name was Upudo Rakita. And um, I offered a meal to everyone, including the monks. And when I offered the meal, I went to see Seda Upandita. It was um, my day to see him for my interview anyway. And so he said, today uh, you are offering a meal. Are you offering it to everyone? And I said, yes, I'm offering it to everyone, including the yogis, because sometimes one could offer just to the monks, which is perfectly fine. And when I said, I'm offering to everyone, he said, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And he says, you're offering to the whole sangha, right? Not just for us as a sangha. Sangha actually means those who are who carry the Dhamma um, by their realization of the Four Noble Truths. You're offering this to all in the Sangha, even to those way up to the Buddha. And I realized, yes, I should do that. Because it's to offer to a big field of merit is important for one's giving. The karmic result of that is great. And so I said, yes, I will. I'll be conscious about offering that to all of the sangha, not only in this act I offer to everyone. And so he gave me a short Dhamma talk then about the offering of food. And later I found this in um, the suttas, so I'd like to read it to you. And he always tells me this whenever I offer food. And I always try to see him when I do. And I always get the same kind of little talk. So I know there are many of us here who have offered and will offer and have offered and in the past, so I'd like to give you this little Dhamma talk that the Buddha gave to a lay woman. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling among the Kolians at the town called Sajanela. One morning, the Blessed One dressed, took his upper robe and bowl, and went to the dwelling of Supavasa, a Kolian lady. After arrived, having arrived there, he sat down on the seat prepared for him. Supavasa, the lady, attended to the Blessed One personally and served him with various kinds of delicious food. When the Blessed One had finished his meal and had withdrawn his hand from the bowl, Supavasa, the Kolian lady, sat down to one side, and the Blessed One addressed her as follows. Supavasa, a noble woman, disciple, by giving food, gives four things to those who receive it. What for? She gives long life, beauty, happiness, and strength. By giving long life, she herself will be endowed with long life, human or divine. By giving beauty, she herself will be endowed with beauty, human or divine. 
By giving happiness, she herself will be endowed with happiness, human or divine. By giving strength, she herself will be endowed with strength, human or divine. A noble woman disciple, by giving food, gives those four things to those who receive it. And so in that sutta, we see the Buddha's understanding of the laws of cause and effect of giving. There was one time when I went to visit Sayadaw Upandita, where he was giving a retreat in Oregon. And I had called ahead because I wanted to offer food. So I went to the place, and um, as we usually do, if we can, we prepare the food. We help prepare the food um, in the kitchen, the kitchen of the monks. And then um, we serve the food. And so we go through the whole act of of giving, of offering the table and then offering the the food uh, one by one, the dishes. Well, I was in the kitchen uh, helping to prepare the food and there was a, cu- a cook, a chef, kind of a high chef, who had come down from Canada, and he was actually Burmese. And he had come down with a lot of food because he knew what the Sayadaws would like, and he cooked Burmese food. And so I learned from him that actually he, he too had brought the food, he had bought the food, and he was cooking the food. And so... I was chopping vegetables with him, and I said, "Um, Brother, you are the one, really, who is offering this food, not me. Uh, You should be the one who who is offering this food and who serves this food and who says, and that they say, this person is offering this food. And he said, Oh, no, no, sister, I'm very happy to give you, to let you have the offering of this food because I know how important it is. So that is my dana to you, that I give, I do this, I bring this, I cook this, I bought this food, I had only given the money for the food. And he said, I give this, this is the dana to you. And I said, oh, but it's so much happiness to give this food. And he said, don't worry, sister, don't worry. I'm still living out the happiness of doing something uh, recently and about food. And I said, well, what, what did you do? And he said, well, not too long ago, um, you, you know that I, I'm a cook. So when I cook, I have to go to the market. And when I go to the market, I have to buy things like shrimp. And they're still alive when I buy them, some of them. And then I have to cook them. And so the other day, I took my son, we went to the market, and we bought the biggest bag of shrimp that I could afford. And we took it down to the ocean and put all the shrimp back in the ocean. (laughs) I'm still living from that happiness of giving that, them life. So when giving, um, you know, usually we try to do everything we can to give in person or to prepare ahead of time, 
to prepare our dana, whatever it is, with great, great care. Even when I didn't know too much about this, before I came into the teachings that deeply, I was living on Maui, and um, uh, one of the great Tibetan masters came to Maui, and I wanted so much to prepare food for him, Kalu Rinpoche. And so they, they said, no, he has somebody to prepare food. And I said, I really want to prepare food. I really want to do it. You have to let me do it. I knew the translator for the Tibetan. And I said, I promise I'll do everything very carefully, and you let me know what he has to eat. And I wanted to give him the food. And I, it was some, some kind of innate wisdom that I had. I didn't even know all of these teachings. And so she let me, and so I went to do the shopping. I, I prepared some nice little Filipino dishes because that's what I knew how to do, and I knew that probably he would like them too. And um, I cut everything by hand, and I did some at home. I went to the home where he was staying, and then um, I cooked everything. I went through all that effort. So I remember all of that intention very, very clearly till this day. And then I put it very nicely on the plate, and then they said they would bring it to him. I said, no, I want to serve him this food. And they said, okay, you know. <laughs> so they, they opened the door, and then I, I went in, and they had to lift him from his bed because he was so weak. So then I could understand why they didn't want me to go in. So they lifted his back, and he sat up. And then I offered the plate to him, and he put out his hands, and he received the plate. And I remember that so clearly. That intention, that act of generosity, has strong, strong seeds in my karmic stream. And so, especially because he was not well. So it's not about what I did. It's about the importance of doing it carefully, of being careful about every act, to really think about it, reflect on it before, during, and after. In Burma, I don't know why, but I'm putting this reasoning why, when people give, they, they don't just give with one hand. They, give with, they hold the one hand with another hand. They give with two hands. It's like giving completely, not just half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly giving. So in recollecting that action, it becomes stronger in memory and it stabilizes the mind so much. So this now is from uh, the numerical discourses of the Buddha about that. And the Buddha was speaking to a person called Mahanama, and this is part of a longer sutta. Further, Mahanama, a noble disciple recollects his own generosity thus, it is a gain for me, it is well gained by me, 
that in a generation obsessed by the stain of stinginess, I dwell at home with a mind devoid of the stain of stinginess, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, one devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. When a noble disciple recollects his own generosity thus, on that occasion her mind is not obsessed by lust, by hatred or delusion. Her mind is straight with generosity as its object. This is called a noble disciple who dwells evenly amidst an uneven generation, who dwells unafflicted amidst an afflicted generation, who has entered upon the stream of the Dhamma and develops recollection of generosity. So this becomes a basis for developing spiritual power, for developing in the enlightenment factors. Vishaka, one of the Buddha's uh, chief patronesses, said this, When I remember my acts of generosity, I shall be glad. When I am glad, I shall be happy. When the mind is happy, the body is tranquil. When the body is tranquil, I shall feel joy. When there is joy, the mind will become concentrated. That will bring the development of the spiritual faculties in me and also the development of the spiritual powers of enlight- and enlightenment factors. And so it is. It's so true. Because in a moment of giving, the three root torments of the mind are abandoned. In a, mo- in a moment of giving, desire or attachment is abandoned. Ill will or fear is abandoned. Delusion, confusion is abandoned. And other wholesome qualities of mind are present and become illumined, strengthened, metta, compassion, equanimity, joy, the Brahma-viharas. I so remember um, Manindra's acts of giving and one such uh, remembrance is when he just was really wanted to give and he was it was not easy during that time i mean he could have been fearful but it was an act that was completely free of fear during that time um, that i was talking about that he lived at our home we lived in a small little hawaiian village and um, in that village also lived uh, a young man and this young man wasn't really of great harm to anyone, but he would scare people because he would break into their our homes in the village. And he hadn't hit our home yet. Um, so he was there doing that. He would break in, and mainly he would go look in the medicine cabinets and see what he could find. And, you know, that's that's what his kick was. Well... We had bought this home because it was one of the run-down, dilapidated homes, and we fixed it up. We afforded it. We fixed it up. And it was there for a long time. We got a good price on it. It was there for a long time because I realized later that people thought that it was haunted by ghosts. 
So um, I never found anything true to that. So, of course, we had all kinds of blessings. I didn't take any chances. We had Hawaiian people come in. We had Christian ministers and the Buddhists come in. And (laughs) the whole house was blessed in every single way possible that you could imagine. And so um, we threw red salt and white salt. We put white flowers around. We burned incense. Uh, We hung uh, tea, tea leaf all around, all of those things and many other things. So we felt the house was blessed and um, whatever had been there wasn't there anymore. Well, I guess this young man dared finally to come in after we lived there for a long time. So he came in, and what happened was I was at work, and Manindra knew how to dial my work, so he dialed me at work, and he said, Oh, Mom, Mom, he he would say in his kind of Indian accent, um, Somebody has just come here in great distress, and I, I tried to help him, but he ran away. And so, I, so, so he said, you must come home because I, I want to find him. I want to help him. And so I thought right away of this guy. We call, his name was Lopes, and um, the Portuguese way of saying Lopez. And so we said, I said, okay. So I came home, and I thought, oh, he's there. I'd better, uh, I wonder if he's, you know, in danger. And I called the police because I thought, you know, he broke in. It's, we should report it. And so I came there, and the police got there ahead of me. So I came in, and watch out if you ask Manindra a question to try to describe anything, because he will describe everything to a T and take hours and hours to describe something. I'm, I'm exaggerating. He takes a long time to describe. So he was describing what was happening. He said, I heard him say to the policeman, this person came in. I was sitting in the back room. He was doing, he would write his letters. Now, I want to pause for a minute and describe Manindra. Manindra has shiny, dark skin, and he wears white robes. Okay. So this guy comes in. He thinks nobody's home. Manindra hears a sound. He gets up. He goes out the hallway. He sees this guy go, ah! <laughs> And it just scares you know what, out of him, and he runs away, and Manindra said he ran after him, saying, please, please, I can help you. (laughs) So he was just seeing the the person's fear, you know, and his, like, apparently he got on a bike and just went away really fast. Well, that did it for us. He never came back, you know. So out of compassion, out of metta, you know, out of the absence of fear and just, you know, wanting to help, that kind of, of beauty of the heart. There's different kinds of giving. 
Um, and it's, it, you know, we see this, and it's good to kind of look at this in ourselves, not as a way of judging ourselves, but just as a way of seeing how the heart is open and, and really objectively looking at our practice. So there's tentative giving, where it's hesitantly, ambivalently, where there's a fear that we might not have enough for ourselves later. Um, So sometimes we can feel that. I remember when I gave a friend once, she cooked for a retreat, and she's a a girlfriend of mine, uh, long, long ago, and there was nothing much to to offer her um, after the retreat. Um, And so... I really appreciated what she did. She would um, stay up late. She'd be the only cook for like 35 of us, staying up late, doing her thing. And um, and then even when I'd come in and say, how are you doing? She'd lay her head on the table and say, Kamala, can I cook you anything? You know, and I just remember that. So at the end, I thought, what could I give her? What could I give her? And so I thought, I had this wonderful dress that took a lot for me to buy. And um, it was one of these designer dresses that I really cherished, and I said, I'm going to give it to her. But I stood at the closet and said, I'm going to give it to her. No, I'm not. I'm going to give it to her. No, no, I can't do it. I'm going to give it to her. Okay, you know, take it down. And then I said, here, you know, just gave it to her. And so... I could tell that was tentative giving, right? So even now, there are moments of regret about giving her that dress. Little, 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 but still, you know? That's the truth. So there's sisterly giving, brotherly giving. We're really willing and happy to share what we have. And no matter what it is, you know, we're, we're willing to share what we have. All of us do that. And then there's royal giving, the very highly developed giving where uh, we give um, what, what we truly cherish, what's really important to us, we, we give away. Or when we think, there are times when we feel, I can't give this, but we do give it, and then we don't regret giving it. Um, you know, there might be some hesitation, but it ends up being a kind of royal giving. It's an interesting story of someone who gave to a fully enlightened being. It might even have been a Pacheka Buddha, one of those silent Buddhas, can't remember exactly, but gave something, um, some kind of food, and it really nourished that, that uh, great field of merit, that Pacheka Buddha or Arahant fully enlightened being, but afterwards regretted of giving that. So according to the text, the karmic result of that for that person was for that person to have great abundance, but to not be able to enjoy it. So it's kind of interesting, the, you know, the different um, frames of mind uh, in the act of giving that have results whether we believe it or not, and who knows, but it's something to ponder on. So this giving is a mindfulness training. It's important to give with a lot 
of conscious awareness um, to re to reflect on our happiness before, during, and after. It will bring us results which are far-reaching because of this quality of letting go that is constantly being developed. We'll just end with this short quote from Shantideva. Even when I do things for the sake of others, it is just like feeding myself. So let's sit for a moment. 